following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Colossians entitled, Jesus Over Everything. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Colossians 1, 15 through 18. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. This is the word of the Lord. Now, we are at the quintessential, the quintessential passage of the book of Colossians. Everything that's going to follow from Colossians comes right back to this. This is the fountainhead of everything that Paul has to say to this young church in the city of Coloss that, that's struggling their way through what it looks like to follow Jesus in the everyday life of stuff. And so this is among not, not only the most important passage for this particular letter, but this is among the most important passages in all of Scripture. And here's why. Because it gives us a foundation for our Christology. It, it shows us who Jesus is and his relation to creation. Oh, that rhymes. It shows us who Jesus is and his relationship to the created cosmos. And so it's going to give us a big view of Jesus this morning. In fact, like I said, it's all about Jesus this morning. Nine times in four verses does it say he or him in reference to Jesus. It's crazy. And so I want to walk us through, and if you've got a Bible in front of you, grab it. And there's one in the pew. If you've got your own Bible, I'm glad you brought your Bible. If you've got that scripture journal, open it up. We're in verses 15 through 18 of chapter 1. It's on page 572 in the, in the, uh, the pew Bible. And, and I just, I'm going to read it again. Because honestly, I could just read it and walk out. God's word is sufficient. But I'm going to read it, and we're going to start unpacking this. As Jesus, as the source the gravity, and the aim of all creation. And let me say this. As I read this, listen for repeated words, because this is really important. Whenever you come to Scripture, like, there's no wasted words. There's no extra words. Every word is used in particular. So let's take a look at this. Verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now what's Paul doing here? Paul is taking us for an aerial view here. He's, he's presenting Jesus, the real Jesus, not some flimsy counterfeit sort of man-made Jesus, but the real Jesus in a grand cosmological fashion. 
What's, what's cosmological mean? Cosmology deals with origins, with the development, and the order of the universe. It deals with where the cosmos came from and why it's here. Why does this exist? Now, you think about it. These are big existential questions, right? Like, why am I here? What, what am I here for? Where did I come from? Huge questions, and Paul is going to answer these and leave no room for misunderstanding, right? Like, you can see this in his repetitive use of words. He's telling us here that Jesus is the creator of all things, right? Again, look at verses 15 through 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, with thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Now, you don't need to go, go to the Greek to really get the meaning of all, right? When he says all, he means everything, Every single thing that has existence, the whole quantity, the entire extent of anything whatsoever has been brought about by and through Jesus, whether big or small, invisible or visible, essential or an auxiliary, whether it's plants, people, animals, or matter, even the air has been created by Jesus. Even the idea of nothing has come from Jesus because to have nothing, you have to have something. All things have come from, been created by Jesus. And just like a craftsman, as he makes a piece of furniture or, or a designer, ma- makes a, a suit or whatever they might make with fabric, they, they, they take that item they've made and they stamp it. They mark it with their name. They brand it. And so it's as if Paul is saying that, that Jesus has branded his mark, his imprint, his name is on everything in creation. You could, you could look, under, uh, look at the tag and say, made by Jesus. Paul is saying Jesus is the creator and the source of all things. All things have come from him. Now you have to, you have to put yourselves in first century context where Paul is sitting in a jail cell as he's penning this letter to understand the scandalous nature of this claim, to to say Jesus is the creator, that he is the source of all things, this would have been asinine for a Jew to say. So, So Paul, coming from a Jewish background, this would have been crazy thought, right? Hope, like, the Jewish faith, if you don't know, is a monotheistic faith. Deuteronomy 6, hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord your God is one. There is only one God. And one of the distinguishing marks of this God of Israel, right, this God uh, who they've worshipped through the ages, is that he is the uncreated creator. He is the uncreated source of all things. And we see this in Genesis 1. In the beginning... God created. This is why God uses the word I am when he introduces himself to Moses. Like, it's not that God was or God will be. It is he, no matter what time, I am. God brought all things into existence. So to claim that Jesus created all things 
what Paul is telling us here, what he's asserting here is that Jesus is God. That's what he's saying. In saying that all things have come from Jesus, all things have been created by Jesus, he is saying that Jesus is God. Now, N.T. Wright tells us rightfully, he says, Paul is not abandoning monotheism here. He's not saying, okay, well, there was once this God, and now there's a new God that we put beside him. No, Paul is redefining monotheism. He's saying, yes, there's one God. And just as we sang about this morning, there's one God in three distinct persons. They're equal in essence, character, beauty, and power, but distinct in personhood. We can look and say the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a mystery. I, I, like, I don't know how to explain it. And one, it's one of those things that we're not really going to understand until we get to the new heavens, new earth, and God reveals himself to us in this fullness of how that three-in-one works, Right? And so Jesus, Paul's saying Jesus is God, and as the source, he's God. Now, verse 15 gives us another assertion of Jesus' divinity. He says in verse 15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, in John's gospel, John chapter 1, verses 18, John says that no one has seen God. No one's seen God. Now, in the Old Testament, we can go back and we can see these theophanies. We can see places where God has revealed himself in part, but nobody has seen God in full, right? We, we see God at the burning bush with Moses. We see God at Mount Sinai as he passes by. Even then, he has to veil Moses' face so that way Moses doesn't come undone. We see God, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego in the, in the, fir- the, the flamey, fiery furnace, Right? They put three guys in, there's a fourth guy there. Who's that? Well, that, that's God. Right? God has made himself seen in part in the Old Testament, little, little breadcrumbs, but no one has seen God. And that all changes in Jesus. See, the invisible God now becomes visible. John 1.18 goes on, no one has seen God, the God who is at the Father's side, speaking of Jesus, he has made him known. Now, that, that, that's, that's a sentence that needs to be un- unpacked. I wish I would have put it up on the, on the screen so you could see the punctuation. So he's saying, no one has seen God, right? No one's seen God the Father, this invisible God who is spirit. And he says, the only God, so asserting once again, there's one God, who is at the Father's side. So even in this sense, the Father, and then there's a God at the Father's side, has made himself known. Now this, is, this piece of scripture to say made himself known is really important. And, and, and really what it means is exegesis. Jesus has made God known. Not by, we don't bring our own assumptions or our own ideas about God and, and, and hyper, uh, what do you call it, superimpose them upon uh, our concept of God. No, we, we look at God for who he is because Jesus has made him known. Jesus has taken the information of God that was invisible and now Jesus has been making it known. And this is why H.B. Charles says that Jesus is the exegesis of God. Right, exegesis, what I do every Sunday, when, when we come to the text, I'm not, I'm not putting my own thoughts and opinions over the text, I, I'm pulling out the meaning and seeing what does God have to say in his word. So Jesus is the exegesis of God. He, he has always bore the image of God. This blew my mind this week. I never even thought about this. Since eternity passed, Jesus has borne the image of God. He is and was the image of the invisible God. 
But in the incarnation, he now becomes visible to us. Take a look at verse 19. Actually, I don't know what I was, we don't even, oh yeah. Verse 19, we're jumping ahead this week. I was like, that's not in our passage this week. Verse 19 says, like, for, for in Jesus, the fullness, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus is bearing the image of God. Hebrews 1.3 says it like this, that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. Now, when Jesus was with his disciples, he was talking about the kingdom of heaven. He was talking about how, how, how great the Father is. And his, his disciples asked, hey, just show us. Will you show us the Father? And Jesus tells them, like, you want to see the Father? Look at me. Like, you want to see what God the Father is like? You, I'm right here in front of you. Like, Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. Now, my dad and I have a lot of similar features. I've got his thin hair. I'm getting his, uh, you know, what do you call these, sand traps here, receding hairline. I've got the, a calic in my beard that my dad has and all my brothers have. I, I got his tree trunk legs. Like, I, I've got features of my dad but, but I can't say, if you've seen me, you've seen my dad. Like, that's not a real thing. Like, you have to see my dad. But Jesus can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because why? They're of the same essence, the same character, the same beauty, the same power. Jesus says, if you want to see the Father, take a look at me. And what is he saying here? Right? He, he, once again, he's asserting, if God the Father is the creator, as, as what the monotheist of Judaism thought, which is true, now he's saying that Jesus is God too. Jesus is with God. That he and the Father are one. And so we see Jesus is the creator. He's the source. That Jesus is God. Now here is a major point where Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism all stand contrary to Christianity. If you want to, to say, okay, what are the differences between these major world religions? It all boils down to this. Who do you say Jesus is? Now all of these religions have, have some sort of like, they all have something to say about Jesus. They look at Jesus and say, yeah, he was a holy man. He was a, a good teacher. He, he set a moral example. He was maybe even a prophet of God. And, and like you get into the polytheistic or multiple God worldviews of, of uh, Hinduism. and they, they might even say he is a God, not the God, but a God. All of these, all of these versions of Jesus sell the real Jesus short. They're all counterfeit, not legitimate versions of Jesus, not how God has revealed himself in the scriptures. They all deny Jesus as the God, which to do so would be completely to dismiss his teaching, or at least to be selective in his teaching, because Jesus said, I and the Father are one. If you want to accept Jesus, you have to accept his teaching to say, I and the Father are one? What? Or, or what about when, he, when he's talking to the Pharisees and he says, before Moses was, I am. Right? Now, I mentioned this earlier, how, how God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, right? 
what, what, what God is calling me. What, how should I, who should I tell the people of Israel, what God is this? He said, I, I am. See, Jesus uses the same exact language. Before Moses was, I am. He's claiming the divinity. Now, with that, if Jesus is God, if he is the uncreated creator, this is another place where other religions veer from Orthodox Christianity, right? Uh, religions like Jehovah's Witness, Latter-day Saints, and any other sort of occult, um, non-Trinitarian religions that would say that there is one God and Jesus is either a man who's been elevated to deity or some sort of prophet or whatever. Any of these other religions verge and diverge from Orthodox Christianity at this point because they don't see Jesus as the uncreated creator, rather part of creation, and, and they get this, that they use this text and they misinterpret it when they see this in verse 15, where he says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. They take that, that firstborn and, and assume that it means chronological order. And so they're saying, okay, in creation, if you're the firstborn of creation, that means you were created first. Now, to, to, to come to that understanding means that you forsake the rest of the context of this passage. Because you cannot be created and the creator of all things. It doesn't work that way. So these, these religions will say Jesus was created. He, he might have been a holy man. He may have been elevated to the point of deity, but he was not the uncreated creator. That he is not divine as God is divine. But here's the reality. If you strip Jesus of his divinity, you lose the gospel. Right? If Jesus isn't God, there's no good news. There's no Jesus born in the likeness of man, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, stepping over original sin, which plagues all of us. Like, if he's not born of God through the power of the Holy Spirit, he's plagued with sin just like us. And so Jesus must be God, or there's no gospel. Now, to understand this passage correctly, we have to look at this firstborn and say, okay, what, what, if he's not the first created thing, what does firstborn mean? And, and this isn't a new concept as, as I unpack this because it's used throughout the Old Testament. It's used with Israel. God looks at Israel and says, they are my firstborn. Now, Israel wasn't the first people created. Right? Or, or even when he's talking to David and say that there will be a firstborn who assumes the position of king that's in Psalms. He's not talking about a chronological firstborn. He's talking about a firstborn in rank or in order, that there's a, a priority on this specific people, on Israel, of this king, and specifically the firstborn of all creation means that with Jesus, there is a creative rank. He has the creative rights and ranks over all of creation because all things were made by him and through him. This is why verse 17 says that Jesus is before all things. Now, that, that, that also means chronologically, like in the beginning, Jesus was with the Trinitarian God. But in the sense of before as an elevated and rank, Jesus is above and powerful over all creation. Now, this is what takes us to gravity. The gravity of of Jesus. Now what is gra gravity? is a power. It's a, a, a power that keeps us tethered to the earth. Now just as each 
piece of creation on earth is subject to gravity, all creation is subject to the power and the authority of Jesus. Abraham Kuyper says there is not one square inch in all of creation where the Lord Jesus doesn't point and look and say, mine. It's his. It's his. He can exercise his creative rights over all creation because it all belongs to him. He has a dominion and authority that extends over everything. And you can even see this authority language as he gets into unpacking creation. He doesn't talk about trees and rocks and streams. He says, uh, where's it at? Verse uh, 16, for all things, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, or rulers, or authorities, right? What are those? Power structures. He's saying all the power structures that we know of in this world, government, your boss, uh, world I don't know, diplomats, all of these powers are under Jesus. He's given them, he's appointed them authority to exercise as undercarers for his creation. But all this power stems from Jesus. Now we see God's power, we see Jesus' power in creating, takes power to create. We see Jesus' power in looking over creation, but here we also see that Jesus exercises power in verse 17 in that he holds all things together. Have you ever thought about how much you presume upon gravity? Right? Did, did you step out of bed this morning and say, man, I really hope my feet hit the ground? Right? Nobody did that. Like we, we just expect gravity to work. It's something we can rely on. It's, it's, a, it's, it's reliable. It keeps us tethered to the earth like we're not floating around. You know, can you imagine trying to, to drink from a cup without gravity? Like that'd just be a mess. Jesus created gravity in order to point us to him. That, that he is the true gravity, that he holds things down, that he holds things together. It's the same power that creates all things which holds all things together. Now, this is, this is a claim that runs um, not unopposed by secular worldviews. Okay, those scientifically minded who buy into um, science has an answer for everything, which science does have a lot of answers, but not an answer for everything. The, the science textbooks are going to accredit this upholding of the world to some sort of invisible force. Right? They're going to say, okay, well, everything, all matter is made up of molecules, which are bonded together, and all molecules are made of atoms, which are bonded together. And I agree with that. I mean, like, that's science. That's, that's valid. Otherwise, we would just be like amorphous blobs, right? Because you're held together. You're in bodily form. Things are working. There's a force working to hold it together. But it's more than just an impersonal electromagnetic force. This is crazy. Behind the upholding and holding together of all things is a personal, deeply relational, deeply invested Jesus who is holding all things together. Now here's the crazy thing. Regardless of if you believe this or not, like regardless of if you believe that Jesus is sustaining and upholding the universe, he's still doing it anyway. 
Like you can doubt him all day long. Jesus is still upholding the universe. And I think this is great news for not yet Christians. I think this is great news for atheists and skeptics who are wrestling with some of these questions that maybe science doesn't have answers for. The Jesus they don't believe in The Jesus they question, the Jesus they want to dismiss is sustaining them so they can keep doubting. You want to talk about grace? That's grace. Right? Can you imagine if, oh, you're doubting me? You're doubting that I'm upholding the universe? Well, then I'm just going to let go. And then just like, what happened? They turn into some sort of liquid or something. I don't know. See, it's the common grace of Jesus that we live in a cosmos, not in the chaos. That Jesus is the gravity that holds all things together. But why? Why does Jesus create and hold things together? What's he doing? What is the aim? What is the purpose of all this? Now, a secular worldview is going to say, well, there there is no why. It just is. There's there's no real reason behind life. There's no real purpose. So you just got to kind of find your own purpose, create your own purpose, do what makes you feel good, makes you feel happy, happy. make your own destiny. And, and, and so we try. Like, it's not just secular worldview people who, who reject Jesus who do this. I think we do, Christians do this regularly. Like, instead of Finding the ultimate purpose, what we're made for, we start to invent other things. We look to our education for meaning, or our career. We look, we look to our spouse or our kids to find significance of why am I here? We look to our bank account for validation. We look to our Instagram likes or Facebook likes or whatever it's out there, right? TikTok likes, right? Some sort of validation. Here's my purpose, to make somebody laugh for a minute. We look to all kinds of things. There's a list of things here. We look to all sorts of things to try to find the purpose, the reason why we are what we are. But anything we come up with is too small-minded. Anything that we say, this is what I'm here for, this job, okay, then you get fired, then what? Or God forbid, you lose your family. What happens then? What are you here for now? Everything is too small-minded according to Scripture. Now, that doesn't mean we don't engage in these things in a healthy way, right? We want, we want to love our spouse as well. We want to take care of our kids. We want to work hard for the renewal of the city. We want to do these things, enjoy the gifts that God has given us, but none of these things are our purpose or aim in life. And verse 16 tells us what we're for. It says that all things... You and me, we were made for Jesus. That you and I and all creation were made for Jesus. Now, to unpack this, think of it as a two-way street, okay? We got northbound traffic, we got southbound traffic. What does it mean to be made for Jesus? Now, the southbound traffic, this has to do with God, like the Trinitarian delight, out of Trinitarian delight, Jesus makes all things for his pleasure. So there's a delight in Jesus in creating. Uh, C.S. Lewis talks about the, the act of creation as this beautiful dance in which from this dance spins out all things beautiful. It's like a, a songwriter who doesn't have a deadline. 
right? Out of the pure joy and delight in music, something beautiful comes out, right? And so that's how it was with the Trinity. The music of creation gloriously comes forth. And everything that is created has the capacity to reflect God's glory. So this is in the sense, what creation is for, it's to reflect God's glory. The mountains reaching up in the sky, the hidden caves of the ocean, elephants, even hydrogen molecules were made for Jesus to show his glory, his beauty. And at the apex of creation, on the sixth day, he creates man, he creates humanity. Now all the other creation as God creates, Genesis chapter one, creates, you know, separated light from the dark, saw it was good. He, he created the, the seas and the land, he saw it was good. He, birds and the fish, saw it was good. Day six, forms man from the dust, blows life into him, breathes life into him, and he says, this is very good. The apex of creation is humanity. And, and as humanity, we carry a, a distinction from the rest of creation. We are told that as humans, we are born in the image of God. We follow after his likeness. Now, this is familiar language with our text, right? Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That means Jesus existed since eternity passed, humanity is modeled after Jesus himself. Jesus is the archetype for all of humanity. That means as creation, we bear the capacity to reflect God's glory, but in a particular way where we show the world specifically what God is like. We radiate God's glory in a way that no other part of creation does, right? You stand, this is crazy, you stand in front of the Grand Canyon and you're like, oh man, this is beautiful. This is breathtaking. See, if you understand creation, you should look at the person across the aisle from you, the person who sits across the table from you in Mitchell Community, the person you sit next to at, at work and go, oh my gosh, look at this. Look at this creation. Look at the beauty. Can you believe the image of God is imprinted on this person? That's, that's the power of humanity. Right? That's the beauty of humanity. So in this sense, southbound traffic, it's, creation is made to radiate the glory of God. It's made for the purpose of displaying God's glory. But the, the, the northbound traffic, it, it's in this sense when we say all things were created for Jesus. So that means just as much as Jesus delights in creating, creation then delights in Jesus. That creation as humanity, we were made to enjoy Jesus, to find our ultimate delight in him. See, what, what, the, the type of life we were made to live is a life of constant delight, constant enjoyment, constant savoring of who God is. We were made, like we have, it's like we have, you know, on your tongue you have taste buds, and the, each, each taste bud has a receptor for a specific flavor. It's like our whole life is one giant taste bud that was made to savor Jesus. And so Jesus delights in us, and we delight in him. And in this, in this 
whole thing where Jesus is being glorified, where creation is enjoying Jesus, it's clear that Jesus is the epicenter. He is the aim of the cosmos. Like, why are you here? You're here for Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It always has been. It always will be. But this idea of a constant stream of delight, a constant party of savoring Jesus, that seems far from reality in our everyday life. Really? I mean, like, to be honest, we've got a lot of hardships. We've got a lot of difficulties we face in this life. We've got a lot of painful things. And there's a sense where if you want to savor Jesus, you have to fight for it. It doesn't come by being apathetic. It doesn't come by just sitting back and waiting for it. You have to work for it. You have to fight for it. You have to, it's there. It's available. You have to pursue it. And the reason it is this way is because sin entered this world, because sin corrupted every single human heart. And in doing so, it made an attempt to ruin creation. Like Satan, like you go to the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, where Satan tempts Adam and Eve with this fruit. He says, you you eat of it, you'll be like God, which is silly because they were already made in the likeness and image of God. That whole interaction was nothing less than an attempt to completely derail all of creation. And it's so crazy. Because of sin, now Satan becomes a power factor, right? No longer do... Like, no longer do we recognize Jesus as the power, as the gravity... But Satan now has this power over us and becomes a a tyrant. And so, like, being children of wrath, which is language from Ephesians chapter 2, being children of wrath, we follow suit of Satan, where we try to ruin creation and dethrone Jesus from our own lives. See, Adam and Eve were the ones who started this whole thing, but we're complicit in this act, too, that we're trying to push Jesus out of, you know, if you think of heaven as the control room of earth, we're trying to push Jesus out of the control room so we can get in there and run our own lives. Now, at best, this looks like just a, a, an apathetic disregard for Jesus, like, okay, yeah, Jesus is a thing, but yeah, I'm just going to, like, that's for some other people and not for me, right? The best case scenario, you're just not interested Worst case scenario is blatant dis- uh, rebellion, right? I, I know that Jesus is here. It's like, I don't, I'm not gonna listen to him. I'm not gonna, you know, it's like this, this rebellion, this cosmic rebellion. And, and instead of Jesus at the center of our lives, we put ourselves at the center. We, we start thinking that we can be self-made. I can create my own identity. I can make myself who I want to be. I can define, oh boy, landmines. I can define if I'm a male or a female. I can define myself based on my own interpretation, my own creation, my own closed off world. And when we do this, the aim becomes something far less than aiming for Jesus. The, at best, it becomes aiming for a version that's, of ourselves that's slightly better. Right? I, I want this better life. But Jesus 
gets pushed in the background, and we miss the true purpose. Now, not only do we push him out as far as like, oh, I can, I can invent myself. I can define what I'm here for, my telos, my aim in life, my purpose in life. I can define that. But this is crazy. We, we start to count on our ability to manipulate and to control our surroundings in order to hold things together. We, 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 we get frustrated. We get anxious. Just think, like the, one of the reasons why you're so anxious, one of the reasons why you feel exhausted is probably because you're trying to hold your life together. You're trying to, to, to control things that aren't yours to control. And so it's no wonder why you get angry, you get depressed when life doesn't go our way, right? Because it's such a, a futile effort. You weren't made to do that. You're, you're stepping on Jesus' toes when you try to be the creator, try to be the aim, try to be the, the power of your own life. Now, if you multiply that by seven and a half billion people who live on this earth, like, things get messy. If it's just one person that's dealing with this, then, okay, we can quarantine that, right, coronavirus-type stuff. You get, we quarantine, quarantine that, we can figure out, everybody else can go on business as usual. But every single person in the universe who's ever existed is dealing with this reality where they look at Jesus and say, no thanks, I want to be my own power. I want to be the source. I want to be the aim for my own life. Or at least I want to define those things. And this only adds to the futility of our fallen world because we're all trying to be Jesus. We're all trying to constantly replace Jesus or move him out of the way. And even as Christians, like this is happening in a functional way. Now, we, we can sit here and we can profess Right, Jesus is preeminent, that he's supreme, that he reigns over all, that he is of first importance. But day to day, hour by hour, functionally, there are places in our lives where this is not true. Now, unless Jesus is still upholding the universe, which he is, this pattern will derail the entire creation. And in some senses, you look through the history books, you can see where God let, gave a little bit of slack in the leash and saw things got really bad. See, Jesus is upholding us even in our rebellion, even as we try to push him out of the control room. He is keeping us from being an ash heap but look at this. Jesus does more than keep the wheels from falling off. Jesus looks at the ruined, the, the tainted, the, the perishing creation. And he doesn't look at it as like, oh, I messed up. Throw it away. Start over. You know, like an artist might take a sketch and like, oh, I don't like it. Crumple it up. Throw it in the trash can. God doesn't do that. See, God brings beauty from the ashes. What he does in creation he does in recreation he he recreates a new people for himself who are subject to his power willfully even 
subjected to his power. To say Jesus is the authority. I'm giving my life. I'm surrendering my life to him. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to do what he commands. It's a people who says, I see Jesus as the source. It's a people who says, I see Jesus as the aim. Like, that's what we're here for. It's all about Jesus. This is the type of people that he creates. And here's how he does it. Here's how Jesus recreates the broken creation. Now, this big view of Jesus, right? He is above all things. He is currently in heaven, reigning and ruling. Jesus leaves the throne. He, he, he sets aside the place of ultimate authority and enters into this broken and rebellious world. He, he puts on flesh and experiences the life that we live. Right? Some people think that like Jesus, because he was the God man, like fully God, fully man, that he got like he just kind of sailed through life super easy. Like, no, Jesus faced every single trial and temptation that you and I will face, if not even to a greater extent. He entered this broken and rebellious, sinful world, and in, in putting on flesh, he lived the perfect life, always glorifying the Father, always doing what we couldn't do, always reflecting God. Not, not one ounce of, of selfishness, not one ounce of, well, let me, let me move God and his thoughts and ideas out of the way, and I'll do my own thing for a minute, go rogue. There's no rogue Jesus. He's perfectly aligned with the will of God and lives the life we can live. And then he subjects, this is crazy, Jesus subjects himself to the evil human authorities and powers of the world. Right, think, think of the passion. Jewish leaders are the one who are instigating Jesus to be put on trial. Then he goes to Pilate. Well, Pilate's like, yeah, I don't want any part in this, but he still lets it happen. See, Jesus subjects himself to the corrupt human authority and he was killed as if he were a rebel because that's what happens, right? If you commit cosmic treason, in fact, if you, if you, get, if you commit any sort of treason, you're, you're snuffed out in a sense. Like you're hushed, you're silenced, you're, you're kind of put away. And Jesus was killed as if he were a rebel. He, he took the brunt of the wrath of God. In fact, he took all of the wrath of God on our behalf. And then God flexed on the powers of this world, the powers that run the domain of darkness, which we looked at last week, of sin, death, and Satan, and he disarmed them. And, and in, in chapter two, it talks about how he disarmed and how he shamed the powers of the earth. Right? These are supposed to be powers that uphold the order of God, and here they are killing God. He disarms them, he shames the powers of them, and he triumphs over them. Jesus actually raises victorious from the dead. Now, this is how Philippians 2, uh, verses 5 through 11 say this. I've got a slide here if you want to follow along. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. This is how Paul, to the Philippians, articulates this. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, this is fascinating because you can see how here, even in this sense, Jesus, the gravity of God, the power of God, that he subjected himself to the authority of the Father, that he, he glorified God in doing so. The aim was God's glory. With every bowing knee, with every professing tongue on this side of eternity, Jesus creates for himself uh, among the fallen creation a renewed and redeemed humanity. That's us, the church. That's what it says in verse 18. <clears throat> oh, back to Colossians chapter 1. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, I, I kind of get like preeminent. I, I know that's a word that we don't use very often, but, but I, again, just so you, it's right in front of your mind. To be preeminent means supreme, first in order or rank, for, first of significance, first in, in, in power, See, Jesus, in his power, defeats death, and in, in being resurrected, he is a new kind of firstborn, that he puts on the immortal flesh, that literally his flesh becomes immortal, that he will not perish again. And because he is the firstborn, that means not only, uh, well, this also, the firstborn in this sense means chronologically, he is actually the first of the resurrection, but also in rank that he, his authority extends into the new creation, the new heavens, new earth, the resurrected world, but because he is the firstborn, it means that there are more to follow. Like, we too will be resurrected as Christ is resurrected. That, that we as Christians, you put your faith in Jesus, you're born again. So the head leads the way. It's like a diver who hits the water. His head blazes the trail. The body follows behind in like. And as the head of the body as the first, as the, the, the pioneer, Jesus is also the authority. When scripture uses the word head, it means both the source and the authority. Like your body can't do anything unless the brain tells it to do something. So Jesus is the authority over this new creation. Now here's, here's where the power dynamic shifts, where there was rebellion in the old created order. Now here among the church is a willing surrender to Jesus. You can see it in the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And behold, I'll be with you for always to the end of the age. See, we, as the church, subject ourselves to the supremacy of Jesus. We, we acknowledge his lordship over our lives. And Jesus did all of this in the first round of creation and into the new creation. He makes all things, 
He upholds all things. He is the aim of all things so that he would be preeminent, that he would be supreme, ultimate in rank. And just as Jesus was supreme in the first creation, he proves it again in recreation. Now, here's where the rub is, because we can, we can profess this on Sunday mornings, and then we get into the daily grind, and we, there is a disconnect between what we profess and our practice. There's a disconnect between us saying Jesus is preeminent and then actually living that out. So, so how, do we, how do we integrate these things? I think... This is really tricky, especially because of cultural American Christianity that tends to have a very small view of Jesus. Like, Jesus is sort of like an add-on piece to your life. Like He isn't the center. He isn't the epicenter of the universe, nor the epicenter of your life. He's sort of this auxiliary piece. Like in, the, in this scenario, Jesus is at best prominent, but not preeminent. And it's like between the cultural version of Christianity that many of us grew up in, between the, the pull of the flesh, the desires to rule and to, to give our own lives meaning, we have this inconsistency. Now, let me, let me help you with some diagnostic work so you can see in your own life where this is happening. Because nobody in this room, I guarantee it, myself included, is functionally living as Jesus is preeminent all the time. So let's, let's do some diagnostic. Look at your calendar. Look at your calendar. What, do you have time with Jesus, like, prioritized? And, and not just this individual time with Jesus, but what, what about gathering? on Like, is Sunday morning a priority in your life where you can hear the word of God preached, where Jesus makes himself known to his people? Or missional community, or, or other things that are are. are kind of trumping the priority of Jesus in your life, of living out life with the body. What about your time? Are you giving Jesus your best time? You're checking your watches now. Are you giving Jesus the best of your time? Or or what about what about your checking account? What does your checking account say about your understanding of Jesus' preeminence? Are you giving to further mission of God? Are you, are you tithing? Are you giving generously so that others might know the preeminence of Jesus? Are you being generous? Even, even not in giving to the church, but with those around you. Right, because generosity is a reflection of God's glory. Like, there's no one more generous than God who did not hold back his son, but gave him over to us. What about your dinner table? Does the lordship of Jesus extend to your dinner table, or is it just sort of like a, a family affair around the table each meal? What about your browser history search? Or your bed? Is the preeminence of Jesus infiltrating all those places that we tend to like hide to ourselves? And those are the places, those are the domains where we're saying, I can be the Lord of my life. I can be the one who dictates the aim and the purpose of my life. Now, let me, and, and as the church, 
Not, not just individually, because the point of this is not just individual, though, though the church is made of individual members that make up the body. But as a church, are we radiating the preeminence of Jesus together? I think Sunday morning is one of the best places to do it. Some of the songs, the songs that we sang this morning are bangers, guys. And they're all about Jesus, right? The way that we worship declares his preeminence and how we serve our city, how we, all these things as the church. See, to, to have Jesus be preeminent in your life means that you love the things that Jesus loves. It means being part of and loving the body. Right? If, if we're part of the body, it means that we love the church. Now, we love the head of the church, but we also love the body of the church because it's Christ's love that's radiating through the whole entire being. Are we living a life to glorify God morally, relationally, missionally? Are we treasuring him? Are we seeing him for all he's worth? Do we see him as the source, as the gravity, as the aim See, this is what we're called to as God's people, as part of the body, and recreating us. We give our lives over to him. And there are places where we have all fallen short, even this week, maybe this morning. But God has called us out of darkness so that we would be his people, so that we would show the world what God is like. So church, let us be that. Let us be people who see Jesus as the glory, to see Jesus as the one who, who leads us and guides us in life, who leads us to the, to the restful pastures in the cool waters of Psalm 23, who, who leads us through the culture that is wanting us to compromise our profession of faith to buy into some sort of counterfeit version of Jesus, but be the people who say, no, this is who Jesus is. God, let us have a big vision of Jesus. As you come to the table this morning, I want you to remember that there is no place where the glory of God radiates more than the cross, where Jesus gave his life up for us. There's no place. So we come and we eat of the bread, we drink of the wine, knowing that Christ has not withheld himself. He's given himself over to us. And in this, he is glorified. But also, it provides us an opportunity to reflect and repent because we have fallen short. We we are not always seeing Christ as preeminent. So as you come to the Lord's table, come with a a mindfulness uh, of what needs to be given over to God in repentance and in faith, trust that Christ is preeminent. Father, we thank you that Christ is preeminent, that he is supreme above all. We ask that you would, in our hearts, make that reality more and more uh, of, a, of an acted upon reality, not, in a, uh, not a dismissed reality. Because Jesus is always supreme. He's always reigning. It's just a matter of if we are subjecting ourselves to him, if we are coming under his authority and rule and seeing him as the most glorious. God, would you show us your glory this morning as we take of the meal? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.